we are in a moment where appeals to government, to the state, to courts, to policy, to legislation, to the United Nations, none of those things are producing the results that we need or desperately, we can't even get a ceasefire, much less an end to an occupation, end to USA, to billions, hundreds of billions of dollars of aid to Israel. You know, even the UN is sort of finally saying a thing. And, you know, the response basically is, you know, fuck you. And from the Israeli government, US and, and allied imperial forces. And so it really is a moment where we have to, well, what else can we do? Welcome to the Death Panel. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. To support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. The work we do is only possible because of the support of our patrons. And as a thank you for your support, we give you 52 extra episodes a year and access to our entire back catalog of bonus episodes, some of which have been unlocked, but there are also so many great ones that are still just for patrons. And some of them are a little too spicy to ever be unlocked, to be honest with you all. Anyways, if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, you can share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore, or pre-order a copy of Jules's new book coming in January called A Short History of Trans Misogyny, or request them both at your local library. And of course, you can follow us at deathpanel underscore. So with that out of the way, Today, I am joined by returning guest, Andrea Ritchie, and I'm really excited to talk to her about her brand new book out from AK Press called Practicing New Worlds. Andrea is a writer, organizer, researcher, and lawyer, as well as a co-founder of Interrupting Criminalization and the In Our Names Network. She is the author of numerous books, including Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color, and No More Police, A Case for Abolition, which was co-authored with Miriam Kaba, as well as this new one, of course, that we're talking about today, Practicing New Worlds, Abolition, and Emergent Strategies. Andrea, so nice to have you back on the show. Welcome back to the Death Panel. I'm so excited to be back. You know I'm one of your biggest fans and a fangirl every time I get to be on here, so I'm grateful. Well, it's always so much fun to talk to you. And first of all, just, you know, congrats on this project coming into the world. Practicing New Worlds is now officially out as of October 24th. And we were going to do this last week, but we delayed so that uh, you could go to a protest in solidarity with Palestine. So just to get that out of the way at the top, you know, that's definitely sort of looming over our conversation today because a lot of this book is really geared towards organizing under the conditions of, of sort of dire urgency and, and worsening violence and fascism. So I'm really excited to talk to you about it because practicing new worlds has been honestly like so thought provoking for me. And as we'll get into, it's a little different. Um, it's actually very different than the past book projects that you've done. And Andrea, um, you know, you've been organizing, advocating, litigating, agitating, doing policy work, all sorts of stuff for decades, working against criminalization and towards more liberatory futures, focusing specifically on policing and criminalization, but also so many other issues in the work that you've been doing. And the organizing that you've been doing is a really important piece of context for the book, which is kind of a strange book and a break in terms of format with your past writing. And I really honestly appreciate it. We talked about how it reminded me 
of almost uh, like an art theory text kind of breaking the boundaries of a lot of things that we might expect from like a nonfiction, like abolitionist text. And so I think, you know, what's really cool is that like, while it's so different from your past writing, it's still completely imbued with and, and moving towards the same politic, like the same horizon. And one thing that really stuck with me, like so early in reading it, and I was hoping we could talk about this first, maybe as a way to kind of contextualize the book, but also contextualize your work for people who may not be familiar and your organizing, is that in the introduction, you say um, you have, quote, learned that building power, making a case and pressing demands on people in power to change laws, policies and institutions isn't the entirety of how we get to the future that you long for. And then you talk about a lot of the work that you've done as a movement lawyer and how you've balanced that work and the work that you've been committed to doing um, of trying to help people get freed now, trying to chip away at the state's power and how, you know, that work of trying to sabotage the gears of the necropolitical state can really wear you down and kind of work against your internal politics and morals and ethics, right? Um, and ultimately, sort of the ways that the administrative burdens of the state and norms of policy work that you have to meet and engage with, sort of regardless of your belief or not in the possibility of court or, or law in uh, achieving liberation, right? This book kind of engages with that that grief that comes from policy work, the, the exhaustion, the frustration, the real physical and mental cost of doing the very necessary work of chipping away at state power and the real hurt that I think so many of us feel when changes that we fight for, that we fight so hard for, yield either only like temporary relief or, as you say, are changes on paper, but not in practice. Um, so a good sort of quote to just anchor this in the text on page 25, you say, though I continued to engage in work focused on law, policy and litigation, I became increasingly disillusioned with both process and outcome at times finding myself deeply out of alignment with my politics and values. And I think this is also something that many people who are regular listeners of Death Panel can really identify with, which is basically all to say that this book feels like a very vulnerable and a very different way of thinking through how to balance that really important and difficult contradiction. And it's personal, but still material and analytical, you know, looking at sort of how to reconcile these two things and how you actually kind of can never totally actually reconcile reconcile these things um, in any sort of satisfying way. So for people who might not know your work, can you talk about what sort of led you here and the project of the book? You know, how did you come to develop this deeper understanding of the importance of both working within the familiar like law and policy work and also trying to step beyond and experiment, um, not holding yourself to one strategy alone or I guess holding yourself actually to one set of skills alone um, is even a better way to put it. I'm so grateful for that um, framing. And I think it it helps me crystallize something I write about in the book, which is that it, it's basically a book about not trying to manifest our freedom dreams through the machinery of a carceral state um, and the heartbreak that comes of trying to do that. And I think that's particularly apparent in the arena that you and I think and organize in around institutions and sort of healthcare generally as a field um, that is not explicitly a law enforcement institution, but one in which policing happens in death-making ways, in ways that distribute life chances, in ways that distribute opportunities to heal from trauma, in ways that, um, or heal from anything really, and sort of demonstrate how, again, trying to manifest our, our freedom dreams through the machinery of the carceral state 
in many ways will reproduce policing, uh, expand policing, and give life to policing sometimes in new and more predatory forms in some way, because they're less legible as policing in the ways that we understand it. So it definitely is an is a culmination of my learning from fellow abolitionist organizers and my own abolitionist practice that the work of abolition does not come, it comes from contesting for power and dismantling a carceral state, but it is as much um, as critical resistance puts it about change and build and thinking about what strategies we deploy to do those things as well as directly taking on and the power of the carceral state. And so yeah, it is it is a departure and a sort of reflection on what I've learned over the last 30, 40 years of abolitionist organizing and an effort to maybe help folks who were newly organized to abolitionist ideas or newly introduced to them or more deeply introduced to them in the context of the 2020 uprisings without the benefit of those sort of 20 mm. years or 30 years of of uh, learning alongside and with and from abolitionist organizers and practicing and and learning from our experiments, including experiments in trying to advance, you know, what we call non-reformist reforms, which are basically harm reduction using policy and law and uh, kind of institutional approaches as harm reduction strategies or as ways of liberating our people from carceral apparatuses and to, to create more possibility for folks to fight them. And and I think a lot of folks came into abolitionist organizing in 2020, you know, with this notion through a budgetary demand, right? Defund police, which is definitely an abolitionist demand, but it is, as Mariam often says, the floor, not the ceiling, right? It's it's only a, a part of abolitionist futuring and abolitionist organizing, or people came into it through demands like ending chokeholds or, you know, no-knock warrants or... um God forbids people saying, you know, yes, abolition uh, and qualified immunity, which is just if you want to hear me rant about why that's not the path to abolition, you can there's a rant somewhere on on interrupt crims IG <laughs> account um, <laughs> with me, you know, going off about that. But I, I think people really entered into through these these budgetary or policy demands. And then, you know, inadvertently were were or advertently or with just not um a whole lot of awareness around it, reproducing carceral practices in new forms, right? And the one that, you know, you and I uh, and many others talk about is how treatment, not trauma, um, fails to acknowledge the carceral apparatus of the medical industrial complex where the treatment is trauma and treatment, you know, is coerced and carceral in many ways, um, particularly when it's substituted for more explicit uh, or obvious policing practices. And so I really wanted to kind of fast forward people through a, a process just because, you know, we, we we're running out of time in a lot of ways um, to to not make those mistakes and to learn from the people that I've learned and practice alongside that, that yes, you know, law and policy and courts and litigation are, you know, where we often see power operating and shape the conditions of our lives, but they're not uh, necessarily the primary or certainly not the only arena in which we practice and and make abolitionist futures and that we need to um, look deeply to these other strategies. The one the other thing I want to say about this moment is, as you said, and I appreciate you saying it, in some ways, this is a book for this moment. Um, when I was writing the book, I was constantly asking myself and the people I was speaking to about my sort of discomfort with putting something out that was one, not, you know, what I know 
completely, but also something that was reaching for different strategies of making power and building power in community um, in a moment when the state, you know, when it perceives those experiments or those ways of building relationship networks and power as a threat, you know, is coming down on them with the full force of the state. And there's no, you know, in this moment, sort of more visible and massive manifestation of that than, you know, the ways in which the Israeli state is just raining down genocidal power on the people of Gaza and the West Bank and Palestine more broadly, and the collusion of imperial powers and not just fostering that, but funding it and and enabling it and, and championing it and cheering it, in fact. So it felt like moments like this, or as I was talking about with Shane Burley last night, you know, the increasing white supremacist violence and anti-trans violence and anti-abortion violence, that it feels like a, a moment where reaching for kind of less of the traditional ways of making change and building power that many of us have been raised in felt like it might be irresponsible because like, what do emergent strategies have to offer in moments like this where you know, state power is relentlessly crushing not just resistance, but existence for Palestinian people um, everywhere and people in, in the Sudan, in the Congo, in, in so many places on earth or where climate crisis is relentlessly consigning so much of the planet and of black and brown and indigenous people across the planet to death that, you know, are these sort of, you know, small scale relationship based network decentralized strategies up to meeting that moment. I mean, particularly because many of them sort of draw from ideas of complexity science that are rooted in nature. And we know that ecosystems can be destroyed by force, right? We just saw on Maui, you know, massive destruction. We we see, are seeing it every day in, in, you know, forest fires in the Amazon or in Australia in 2020. So, I mean, so it's these these systems that we're looking to for guidance on how to shift complex systems, which include human societies and, and global ecosystems, are susceptible to being destroyed by force. And so what what could these strategies have to offer in terms of ensuring our survival in the face of that in this moment? And then as we're living it, and as I continue in conversation with many people I thought alongside and spoke with, in many ways, it is a book for this moment because, you know, uh, we're in a moment where appeals to government, to the state, to courts, to policy, to legislation, to the United Nations, none of those things are producing the results that we need or desperately, we can't even get a ceasefire, much less an end to an occupation, end to USA, to billions, hundreds of billions of dollars of aid to Israel. You know, even the UN is sort of finally saying a thing and, you know, the response basically is, you know, fuck you. And, um, from the Israeli government, U.S. And, and allied imperial forces. And so it really is a moment where we have to, well, what else can we do? I mean, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't use those strategies and methods. And I hope that everyone listening to this podcast will, as you're listening, pull your phone out and go to bit.ly stop Gaza genocide, capital letters for each new word, um, and find a way to contact the people who are approving this genocide and funding this genocide and, and insist and demand that they stop. I hope that you will go to gazaispalestine.org and find an action near you as uh, thank you for rescheduling Beatrice. So I could go visit uh, representative Debbie Dingle, who <laughs> calls herself a feminist, but mm. is not acting in a way that is in any way connected to any kind of feminism I believe in, which would not have at a minimum 50,000 pregnant Palestinian people being subjected to genocidal violence at a minimum. Um, and 
and to, to just continue to take action because that we have in this moment through decentralized coordinated action united around some very simple principles, ceasefire, stop genocide, and the occupation, free Palestine, shifted public opinion in some ways, shifted, had an impact on the narrative such that, you know, we're seeing the response, right? They're normalized. The, yeah. Normalization. Right. Well, Exactly. And we, but we've also seen how like the impact that we've had through those actions has shifted what the state is doing. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, the reason Biden is trying to discount the numbers of people killed is because the numbers of people killed are causing alarm with increasing numbers of people. Right. And so for him to maintain his position, he against our you know push around ending this violence is that he has to minimize it. He has to disappear it. He has to, you know, the Israeli government is saying, oh, you know, you're disturbed by video coming out of Gaza. Well, there will be no more video, right? Like there's, there's, there's a, the response, the the horrifying response that they are engaged in in this moment is actually testament to the power of the actions we've been taking. So I think that's a long way of saying that, you know, I was concerned about the experimental nature or the, the sort of turning to strategies that are not your sort of Alinsky-esque mask mobilization, uh, top-down, mm-hmm. you know, organizing strategies and turning to ones that um, feel a little more intangible and and challenging to see, particularly how they build and, and protect us in this moment. And to the extent that people are surviving in this moment, they are surviving through their relationships. They are surviving through their networks. They are surviving through small acts that, that you know, coalesce into things that can actually shift systems of power. And so I, it is an offering to this moment. It is an offering also to just be like, we can't keep turning to the things that we've always done because they are continuing to produce the same things. And it doesn't mean that we haven't made any progress over time and that we aren't moving towards different futures. But I think in this moment of multiple crises, we need to be reaching for every tool available. And I just wanted to explore these ideas and ways of thinking about abolitionist organizing. And in doing that, realize that I've actually been practicing emergent strategies as part of abolitionist organizing in some ways my whole life. And so I'm hoping that it can also offer for folks who have been engaged in abolitionist organizing for a long time in theory and practice, sort of some clues or ideas of what to lean more into or what to give more energy and attention to and to also ground people who are taken or inspired or intrigued by the ideas that were put out in Adrienne Brown's book, Emergent Strategy, um, which summarizes sort of many areas of work around emergent strategies, plural, and ground them in abolitionist organizing. I think people were were very intrigued and excited by those ideas. They are exciting and um, didn't necessarily kind of make the next step of, of understanding that they are invitations to action, not to just observation and marveling at <laughs> nature and um, kind of sitting back and waiting to see what emerges, right? Um, it, they are invitations to action and they are invitations to intentional action guided by a politic. And so, my hope was to kind of channel those folks uh, more deeply if they weren't already into abolitionist organizing. And, you know, later today, I'm hosting, I think, the final event in uh, the series since the book's launch with anti-violence organizers who are going to be talking about how these strategies are actually how anti-violence organizing in its best forms is and always has operated. And so I think um, inviting people into seeing the principles and practices is another basis for the book. One of the things that this book is kind of 
a part of, like, as you've mentioned, is this idea of emergent strategies, which like personally, I really appreciated in the introduction, you <laughs> have a very firm for what for me was like a reframe of what emergent strategies was actually describing. And you talk about this a little bit. And I think it's the section that's like what emergent strategies is not. Um, from the perspective of reading this now of reading your reframe, and I would love for us to sort of just discuss what emergent strategies is, because, you know, this has a kind of specific historical uh, location, right? Like the kind of movement of emergent strategies, the specific group of people also kind of has a home in a place in Detroit and, and Detroit looms pretty large in this. So do you mind for folks who um, maybe don't have any idea <laughs> what emergent strategies even is referring to, could we just talk through sort of what this broad set of ideas is about? And just to kind of contrast it also with policy work, not in terms of a one or the other situation, right? Because what we're ultimately talking about here is, is something that has many names. And that's what reading this book, the first challenge this book offered me was to challenge my understanding of what emerging strategies was even referring to, right? Which was like, I, you know, took something very different than the way that you described described it and the way that you described it, I had the exact same feeling of, oh shit, like this is, you know, just another word for many different things that we and many other people have just been doing, right? And, you know, what emergent strategies is kind of referring to is both like a very specific um, example, right, rooted in recent history, but it also like offers this fantastic recontextualization of all sorts of movements that there are a lot of attempts to sort of impose um, early historicization on, like the 2020 George Floyd uprisings. And this was a point that uh, my co-host, Abby Cardis, I know really wanted to bring into the discussion here, which is that this sort of way of thinking about, for example, you know, not just in terms of, um, you know, the idea of like, uh, the 2020 uprisings were the result of spontaneity in terms of like either a romantic framing of that or of a kind of disparaging framing of, of spontaneity. It offers this different kind of idea of convergence that actually reflects like a better historiography in terms of like how the world works, right? Like, which is that things don't cause each other the way that we often narrativize them. There are so many different contingent phenomena just happening all at once. And what actually plays out before us is not ever the result of any one strategy, any one policy, any one government, governance, government, or honestly, so much of this book is about the importance of paying attention to implementation, right? Like that it can't just be the laws and policies, but it's the enactment of things in our daily life, in our in society, out in the world, and those norms and expectations and sort of what quote unquote normal is even designated at that is ultimately sort of what is the medium that we're all working in every day when we're talking about organizing and, um, you know, incorporating your political beliefs into your everyday life. Well, you just described what emergent strategy is, but I'll try, <laughs> I'll try and um, point out. But I do want to, before I do that, um, I think it was really about um, departing from being someone who, you know, Ruth Wilson Gilmore describes as being preoccupied with the recitation of the problem. Uh, which has been sort of my previous writing. And, and and it's been focused on resistance as well, for sure. No matter where I was writing, whether it was Queer Injustice or Invisible No More or No More Police, resistance um, is very much in the foreground. But the particularly the first 
two books and kind of major areas of work in my life have been about illuminating and lifting up how policing manifests in the lives of um, Black women, queer and trans people, women, queer and trans people of color, because I think it illuminates what I was talking about at the top of the show around how policing operates through the carcer- the machinery of a carceral state, even in institutions that we understand as benevolent or even helping institutions, and that that is far more visible when we examine um, the interactions and, and uh, regulation and policing of the bodies of Black women, queer and trans people, and women, queer and trans people of color. And so it helps us see that moving through the realm of policy, which is actually comes from the same root as police, um, right. will will lead us to uh, similar ways of, di- of distributing life chances, who's in, who's out, who's a citizen, who's not, who's eligible, who's not, um, unless we are really moving towards, you know, communism, not just in the sense of health, but in the sense of, of everything, you know, everything for everyone um, without conditions or, or uh, limitations. And I think what the response people had both, I would, I, you know, when we first started, um, sort of going around and speaking to people about queer injustice, I used to start by reading like one of the stories at the beginning of one of the chapters to kind of launch into a discussion. I would often look up and just see people flattened by the the trauma and story I had just dropped on them. And for some folks, you know, it was empowering in some ways because they were like, finally, someone's talking about an experience of policing that I've had that is not part of the the common mainstream narrative of policing. And I feel seen and empowered by that and, and that there's an invitation to collective resistance around those experiences. But I had so many people, including organizers being like, you know, one organizer who I've I've known for, you know, three decades said, wow, invisible, no more great book. But that was like 400 pages of misery. And I was like, Oh, wow. Like that one (laughs) is not what it is. There's, there's lots of resistance historical in it, but I understood what, they were saying, you know, other people were like, oh, I started reading it on the plane. And I was like, oh, this is clearly not a good idea. And we had to put out a reading guide. Well, we wanted to put out a reading guide. But what we found early that we had to put in the reading guide was a guide to reading it um, and a ways for people to ground themselves and um, nurture themselves and lean into the resistance that is lifted up in the book because it was so much a recitation of the problem. So the way you see art and visionary fiction interspersed in the book and even on the cover, which was so important to me. I'm so grateful to Amir Kadar for gracing uh, the book with this gorgeous image that, you know, sometimes I, this is a very difficult book to write for lots of reasons. And it feels like, you know, kind of a very, I, I describe in the acknowledgements, you know, like a very difficult pregnancy. And um, there were times when I kept writing just because I wanted this cover to be in the world. And I just <laughs> thought, well, we have to fill it with something. And so that that art and and then all the conversation about visionary fiction um, and conversations with artists, including uh, Diana Nucera, Detroit-based artist, also known as Mother Cyborg, who talks about the role of art in shifting culture, in shifting common sense, and in offering hope and possibility, including in the bleakest times. Um, was a departure I mean an effort to invite people into the conversation and to understand that, you know, abolition has to, you know, in our abolitionist movements have to not so much recruit people as draw them to our vision and has to be, you know, so captivating, enticing and beautiful, even as the struggle towards it is hard and difficult. Um, 
because that's how we create a world that actually looks that way as opposed to, you know, we'll grind hard and we'll be tarred and terrible and terrible until we get to the revolution, right? Which sounds a lot like actually the kind of Christianity I was raised in, right? Like, you know, life on earth is hard and then you get to heaven, right? That's, and instead, you know, we want to make a beautiful struggle. And um, and we that means visually also. So the other piece that, you know, emergent strategy in some ways um, really is talking about is talking about building abolitionist cultures, right? And in the Gramscian yeah. sense, and I and in the Milkar Krabal sense, and in the sense of many people who I've studied and, you know, um, uh, come up through, I'm grateful to Sage Crump, who is a member of the complex movement collectives and of the Emergent Strategy um, Ideation Institute before it sunset this year, um, who really kind of helped me ground my materialist left politics and and not have the sense that this was somehow a, a woo departure from those, right? Or some kind of social justice, yeah. self-help work, but to actually understand that what we're talking about here and that actually, you know, Marx and Engels also look to the natural world for an understanding of how societies change because ultimately emergent strategies are about how change happens and how our societies are structured in the same way that other complex systems operate in similar ways, which is by interaction of the components using, you know, simple messaging and a unified purpose, right? And so obviously we are not slime mold, we are not mushrooms, we are not ants, but there are things that we can learn from them because those complex systems achieve things that individual actors very much contribute to and make possible individually through individual action and through interaction and through collaboration um, that they could not make possible on their own. And um, that's ultimately what organizing is, right? That we come mm-hmm. together to shift systems of power. And so how we do that, the how of that is what emergent strategies kind of explores. And it is, as you say, rooted in many different Things I'm so grateful for the work of Leanne Batamasaki Simpson, who writes basically in emergent in um, as we have always done about uh, indigenous lifeways, Anishinaabe lifeways, Anishinaabe uh, practices of uh, social, economic, and uh, political relations and spiritual relations that focus on relationship, focus on critical connection, focus on reciprocity, understand that the way we are with each other and in relationship with the world around us and the nations around us, Maple Nation, you know, uh, Salmon Nation, uh, other nations of the world, um, of the natural world and and the, the human world are what make the world we live in, that mm-hmm. we make the world we live in through how we structure our relationships with each other. And if you have a society that is focused on reciprocity, um, mutual care, solidarity, um, and really carefully curating your relationship with yourself, with each other, with the collective, with the land around you, with the planet that you're on, that that generates a particular kind of system and society. And so that's one very deep um way of thought. And and certainly Leanne's not the only person who's put that out, that Klee Benali, many other Indigenous scholars and writers have similarly talked about Indigenous lifeways in the context of abolitionist organizing and um, sort of offered sort of theories and practices that um, are reflected in emergent strategies. Uh, Another thing I learned was, you know, even people in the business world have figured out that A top-down strategy that's a five-year plan that, you know, is going to be executed 
you know, with great fidelity to the details that is developed by four or five people is not the most effective way for them to achieve change in their environments either, right? And that they noticed that they were more successful in achieving their goals when they allowed people to learn from their interactions and from their practice and experimentation and then shift um, kind of the collective practice based on that um, in a in a less top-down and more bottom-up or horizontalized way. And so those are some of the strands of, and then there's uh, some organizational development research by Margaret Wheatley um, that Grace Lee Boggs, um, you know, a, a beloved elder and teacher and organizer here in Detroit sort of picked up on and started applying in the context of what she called visionary organizing, which is, you know, prefigurative organizing, uh, organizing to practice the world we want in the process of building it. Um, that, that all came together and were, you know, summarized through, you know, the lens of Adrian May Brown's particular experience, um, experiences both as a facilitator um, and organizer in the book Emergent Strategy. But as I said, it draws on, you know, a really deep um, and wide-ranging body of work that ultimately is about organizing. The last thing I'll say is it's about um, also the principles at work in Black feminist, you know, practices and politics of care and collective uh, community and in what it would take to dismantle every single system of oppression that operates in the lives of Black women, girls, and trans people, not just in the U.S., but everywhere. And that does require you know, as Ruth Wilson Gilmore says, to change one thing, which is everything, which means we have to also, you know, re-examine, you know, our institutions, our, our, our practices of making change that we, that we need to examine how policing happens again, you know, in, in every aspect of the lives of black women, girls, queer and trans people and um, our communities and, and allies. And that, that requires us to kind of operate the level of this cultural change and not, that doesn't mean having, you know, organizers in the writer room in Hollywood. Like that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> we're talking about cultural change just to be super clear. And we're not talking about, you know, narrative shift as something that's somehow devoid of organizing. We're basically talking about organizing, which is changing how people make sense of the world around them and how they act to shift the conditions that are shaping their lives and how we do that uh, individually and invite other people to do it uh, collectively. So the one of the key points of emergent strategies is that we do do that at the level of critical connections um, or what people call also, you know, fractals, which are, you know, working at a scale of oneself of people that were in a relationship of small communities of practice of experiments that are undertaken um, at a small scale, but with an intention of shifting a system at a larger scale. So it doesn't mean we're going off to form our little commune in whatever area and leave everyone else behind and we'll practice our utopia there. Far from it. It's just an understanding that shifting larger systems require us to operate at the building block level that we won't ever get to a society free from violence if we're not able to unlock the things that produce violence um, at the individual relationship and community level and and practice something different at those levels in order to shift a larger system. Um, so operating at the fractal level or the small level or the level of critical connections is one piece of it. The other is that we we move in communities of practice that are decentralized but connected and we recognize they're interdependent. And I think that, you know, post the 2020 uprisings, there was this idea that, you know, we should have one quote unquote alternative to the police and that we would just replicate that everywhere, you know, across the country. And 
um, which is a, a top-down strategy, right? Basically, and you know, we had even like the Cahoots Act, where we'd have non-police, you know, community crisis response that was maybe replicating policing, or in many cases, replicating policing in new forms by simply substituting, you know, medical coerced medical interventions for incarceration um, in a cell to maybe incarceration in a, in a healthcare facility or some other form of coercion or carceral control. And that's what that's the problem right there is that if we were trying to replicate things cookie cutter across the country that we're going to end up replicating the systems that we're trying to dismantle. And and as Mariam often says, if we think of alternatives to police, police are still foremost in our imagination and we're just going to produce something that looks like them or act like them, but maybe looks slightly different. So the the idea that we do decentralized um, projects and experiments and then um, connect them uh, and learn from them and then, you know, network them together into something that can shift a larger system is is at the heart of emergent strategies. And so we see that Frankly, you know, in the 2020 uprisings, there was no top-down strategy. It's not like someone one day was like, we are going to launch this, you know, movement and this is how we're going to do it. And here's the talking points and here's the toolkit and everybody, you know, go say the same thing and do the same thing everywhere. To the contrary, it arose as a, a decentralized response that was rooted in each community and in each kind of um, set of conditions, unified by a simple set of principles, which is no further money to dust-making institutions, invest in life-making institutions and practices, and, you know, stop killing black and brown people. <laughs> and that was, you know, the kind of three rules. And then people sort of operationalize those through protest in many different places. Um, and as you were saying, deeply, they were coming out of communities of practice and organizing that were had been happening in those communities for decades, right? The people who came together didn't just all spontaneously find themselves on the street. Yes, certainly we didn't know everybody out there, but I know I was out there with my neighbors and people I'd been organizing with for a long time or my family members. People were out there with their faith communities. People were out there with their uh, workplaces. People were out there with their unions. People were out there with, you know, people who they were already in practice with and already thinking about how to make different worlds or how to change conditions with. Um, and then some people were attracted to that who hadn't necessarily been part of those communities before. And that's sort of what makes something that look like, oh, everyone just ran out into the street somehow spontaneously. That's not how it works. And I, I, I think that there's a lot in the kind of theory of emergent strategies about how things like Occupy and the Arab Spring and the uprisings of 2020 happen. And they start with these critical connections and communities of practice even if you think of, you know, the WTO or even the action at Grand Central Station that Jewish Voice for Peace put on where 300 people were arrested and thousands of people were shut down Grand Central Station and, and the streets outside of it in New York City recently, that was organized by affinity groups of, you know, five or six or seven or 10 people who were organizing together to figure out how to make that possible. And that certainly is how organizing has happened in, in many kind of mass mobilizations. There's still a community of practice. There's still relationships. There's still critical connections. They're decentralized, but connected and networked in ways that can then produce an impact that's greater than each of the units of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other thing that you said about kind of everything happening everywhere all at once, um, it is a very kind of nonlinear process, right? It's not like we can build towards something there there are many things operating i mean we can build towards things but there are many conditions operating at once that we need to be responsive to and adjust and shift and 
that can make the process of of moving towards the worlds that we want appear sometimes, you know, the I talk about the book sometimes changing complex systems is uh, goes from one pole to the other. Some of us might recognize as dialectical materialism, some of us or, you know, um, a kind of, you know, iterative process, but sometimes it also looks just chaotic, right? And but what's happening is uh, still the product of how complex systems operate in ways that if we understand it better, we can shape it better. Um, and that's, you know, there's other principles of emergent strategies that they're cooperative, that they're adaptive, that they are rooted in inter- interdependence and transformative justice and building resilience and building capacity for survival and creating new possibilities because we are living inside, you know, the possibilities that someone else imagined and made, you know, uh, materially possible. And we want to make other things materially possible. And and that requires us thinking about what's going to generate new possibilities. So that's, those are kind of the principles of emergent strategies and the places that they emerge from, um, which when you talk about them and think about them that way are not, are not woo. <laughs> They're no. just descriptions of how change has happened, how we've been making change and reflections on how we can be most effective in shaping change and also ensuring our collective survival under the conditions that are rapidly changing. I think the thing about kind of the five-year strategic plan top-down strategy um, is that, you know, whether we're thinking about science or business or organizing, it doesn't do well in rapidly changing conditions because you can't plan for every possible changing condition. We, you know, people who were have been organizing for decades as abolitionist organizers could not have anticipated 2020. Sure, we knew pandemics were coming. Sure, we knew climate collapse is happening. Sure, we knew police violence against Black people is everyday occurrence. I don't think we under, and we knew that we knew the right, you know, uh, white supremacist right uh, was certainly on the rise and, and entrenching itself in power. I don't think we knew that all those things were going to happen in a, in a way that was so visible and tangible in a single year and that that was going to produce a particular reaction. But if we are tuned into emergent strategies along side and within a, a, a abolitionist politic and understanding of building power um, to create the worlds we want in our communities and, and in our regions, then we can seize those moments or shape those moments and make them a more effective portal through which we push our vision of the future into being. And, and that's what emergent strategies is an invitation to think about. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I really appreciate uh, so many threads to pick up on in there, but I really appreciate how towards the end you sort of explicitly uh, designated like what that analysis of complexity and systems needs to be toward and reproducing, right? The ideas of like, why are we looking at systems this way? Because my um, like my wariness around emergent strategies is the fact that, you know, par- this project itself, Death Panel, it was partially started uh, out of frustration with um, the exact same source of inspiration, complexity science, being um, one of the big ideas starting in the mid-2000s in healthcare discourse, you know, like the sort of health finance uh, landscape, the policy landscape that, that Death Panel is really kind of here in response to, right? The Complexity science is like a huge, huge, huge part of the ways that management consulting firms right now and for, you know, 
almost two decades at this point, um, have really talked about like what the future of healthcare administration is going to look like, right? And it's been this kind of, you know, it's where a lot of these ideas like the stakeholder arguments um, kind of are located, right? The idea of like looking at really complex systems in terms of uh, not just like policies, but how governance and implementation happens at a cultural and interpersonal level amongst very, very small relationships within a healthcare organization. So for example, like complexity science has been used by health admin people to undermine healthcare workers and lower staffing ratios. It's been used to undermine you know, workplace organizing. It's been used to um, more, you know, sort of accelerate and create additional pathways for monetization and extraction of profit in the healthcare encounter, right? It, it's this it's this kind of drumbeat of folks that, you know, we're sort of explicitly working against. And so when I saw the kind of ways when I think I first read, I can't remember what year, Adrian's book came out, but I, you know, I, I, I saw the echoes of, you know, this kind of like same ideology that was being used to, you know, basically justify and propel these massive consolidations of hospital systems and these massive mergers that were resulting in, you know, just like drastic changes to networks and the whole point being basically to try and like work out a balance that hospitals wanted more power relative to insurance companies. And and so it's like that for me was the context of complexity science, right, that I'm sort of coming from and thinking about all the time. And so it, it worried me in some ways because I was, um, you know, really stuck in terms of thinking about complexity science in that particular way and the way of like, you know, looking at localized rules and small scale groups to try and like develop and adopt ways to, you know, increasingly embed repression in the everyday culture of healthcare encounters, right? And and to sort of realize how hospitals were using the very same ideas that are very inspiring to things that I want and, you know, underlying the work of, you know, so many people who are are seeing the same goals as me. We're on the same path, right? We're working toward the same horizon. And, you know, there's a kind of fear sometimes of like stepping too far into appropriation of tactics of the enemy, right? But part of one of the things that you're you're talking about in this book, which We've touched on a couple of times, but I want to just bring in explicitly is this kind of like point of urgency. Um, and the fact that this is, again, as you you talked about, this book is really, really thinking hard about the context of it being written and it being like sort of offering itself and its lessons to folks in a moment where we're facing uh, increased urgency, resurgent, powerful fascists um, and conservative organizers, you know, there's a kind of asymmetry of power, right, where we can appropriate the tools and use the same tools inspired by the same analysis as like the hospital corporations and, you know, healthcare administrators and the people, you know, designing the ACA is, is also, you know, inspired by complexity science and all these ways that law and policy and the implementation of those laws and policies have been used to extract from us and enrich, you know, insurance companies and create markets at the expense of meeting people's needs and things like that, right? Like when it comes to, you know, whether or not we choose to like try and take on these strategies ourselves, we're all also always working 
in a different relationship to the state, to power, to resources than our enemies are. Whether we're talking about appropriating like Christian right organizing, that's also, you know, hyper-localized, the kind of evangelical um you know, way of trying to convert people, right? Like there are so many parallels to organizing strategy, door knocking, things like that, you know. But the thing that's also important is to always recognize like and include power analysis and also be including, you know, a really specific um, intent with that analysis, whether that's, you know, taking the tools of our enemies and, um, you know, re- framing where that is towards and why that analysis is being applied, like in the case of complexity science, and as a kind of underlying principle of how folks engaging in emergent strategies are thinking about their projects as part of a whole, right? Like, so these these different containers, right? Like, even the idea of normality, like in and of itself can be quite neutral. What's really important is like, what are the values um, and literally cultures, like day-to-day practices, reproductions, words, language, like what are the things that this this is actually going towards is, is so important because these tools in and of themselves can be fascinating, but can be equally as powerful to the people we are organizing against who are much better resourced than we are. And so it's so important to always make sure that we're grounding you know, what we're talking about in terms of where we're going, not just, you know, where things are. And so part of what, you know, this is also really seeking to foster is a kind of reactivity that I think recognizes the fact that even the things that we say and pretend are like these big institutions, right? You know, like the WHO, the FDA, uh, the idea, very idea of what a safe pharmaceutical is, we think about it as coming down from this kind of top-down centralized authority, but that authority is actually made up of a more horizontal consensus, right? That that the authority itself is more of like a centralized um, facade to create the idea of a large structure, but the actual pieces of that structure and how that decision gets made, you cannot understand from looking at the the sort of end point, right? You have to look at what is the entire social context and political context and economic context of, you know, all research and what drugs are being tested and how and on who and market, right? So it's it's about sort of, I think, looking at, okay, how do we both think about our enemies realistically, materially speaking, and think about, again, how do we react and respond, but also stake out our own, um, you know, path or whatever. You know, it's like not just about being reactive, but being proactive and being not always beholden to doing all of our work in that context where we're always up against the state trying to negotiate, like, you know, our own beliefs and politics against the the reforms that um, and the conditions that those reforms might be be under, right? That we can't limit ourselves to one strategy alone, especially under these circumstances with increasing urgency. And one of the things you talk about in the introduction, you know, there's this one part where you mention like Sometimes when things are more urgent, like it's even more difficult to step outside of various strategies. And I think that's kind of like part of where my own resistance and wariness of like emergent strategies when I initially encountered it and seeing that similarity and seeing the same 
sort of source material and, and, and point of inspiration to, you know, the kind of health services arm that I was really like working against. Like that was a moment where the the sort of urgency that I was under like closed off um, a possibility and closed off language and community for something that I was already doing. Right. And, and it's such an important thing and lesson to learn, you know, that uh, the, the point is to do this for the rest of our lives, right? We're, we're not, there's no silver bullets. There's no easy victories. This is like a, a, a sort of path we're all on together. And it's something that, you know, is about, there's no one right strategy. There's no 10 point plan. There's no one policy, right? Medicare for all is just a floor. It's just a tool. And each of these tools can be used to build the w- world that we want, or they can be used, you know, to, to, you know, re-entrench and, and uh, worsen the world that we're struggling in now. Absolutely. I think, I mean, the one uh, friendly amendment I would make is that the right and capitalists have appropriated these strategies from us, right? From from uh, indigenous ways of knowing yes, uh, the notion, the notion of, you know, fractals uh, is rooted in in mathematics that, you know, people in African societies grasped long, long, long before um, Western societies did and, and organized societies. You can see it in how um, in hair braiding patterns, in in the ways that cities are constructed in, in African societies and how African societies are organized. Um, so the principles that we're talking about were, you know, is only when, you know, Western or the right or neoliberals or whatever kind of caught up and we're like, oh, this is actually how change happens yeah. um, and start appropriating them that we started seeing them using them. And I think it, that's an important distinction because I, um, I think, I, I think it's, important to recognize that ultimately these strategies are neutral. They're just how change happens. Um, And I I think that was an important realization for me in writing the book too. I think in an early draft, I wrote something ridiculous, like, you know, uh, emergent strategies, you know, inevitably lead to abolition or something. And one of my early readers, thankfully, was like, that seems like a bit of a leap, Andrea. Can you, (laughs) can you break that down a little bit more? And, you know, kindly, and it was and then Ill Weaver, again, you know, this this um, incredible abolitionist organizer who's also a student of complexity science, pointed me to this research study that the Rand Institute did around decentralized yeah. strategies. And, and they were looking at the Zapatistas, but they were also looking at the people who built the atomic bomb, right? And also the atomic bomb is complexity science, right? Like it's it's a setting off a chain reaction, a series of of um, of interrelated things that produce, you know, horror right and so i i think that part is really important to understand which is that this these understandings of how change happened can be used for good and evil Mm. and are increasingly being used for evil as you know our opponents figure these things out and that was also and i'm grateful i had a conversation uh with shane burley uh, at Firestorm Books, where we talked also about how the right is increasingly deploying these strategies Mm -hmm. and um also looking to the Zapatistas and thinking, oh, let's employ dual power strategies. Let's employ prefigurative organizing where we prefigure the societies we're trying to build, as well as confronting and contending with the state for power. And so in some ways, at one point, and I, I was you know, very conflicted about putting this book out you know, in the face of rising white supremacist violence, as I was saying, in the face of you know, rising state repression, and ultimately 
came to the conclusion and, and shared in the book that if you believe nothing else, if you don't believe emergent strategies are the way to go, no worries, you know, I, or, <laughs> but you definitely need to understand them yeah. because that's what no, the right's yeah. using. That's how we got to where we are. And again, people really are focused on, you know, look, they control the Supreme Court, they control the legislatures, they could, they're passing all these laws across the country. That's where the fight is. And that is where the fight is, but that is the tip of the iceberg of the fight. How they got there is through critical connections, relationships, communities of practice, networks of influence um, that were able to shift common sense and understanding. And I think the point that you make is really important, though, is that while they are, these methods are neutral and are how change happens, when they're deployed by people with more resources or with ideological wins behind them, then they can be really powerful, right? When when they're deployed by white supremacists in a society that's built on white supremacy, then <laughs> they they we, we're seeing the impacts of that right now, right? So it requires us to understand them even better in order to make strategic interventions and not just be fighting at the tip of the iceberg, wondering why totally. we're not getting traction. Um, so I think those those things are important to keep in mind in the in this moment as we're um, navigating those things and. Um, and just to remember that, you know, we've been able to use them, you know, to shift systems of power that, that felt intractable in the past. And I think that some of what we're doing, you know, in our efforts to, to build healthcare in that is liberatory or build, you know, well-being that is liberatory, um, reflect them. And, and so, I think there's a lot to kind of draw on from our experiences. And I think recently I've been thinking a lot about anti-apartheid organizing that I was involved in in the 80s that targeted the South African apartheid state and its genocidal practices. And, um, you know, in many ways, there wasn't a top-down thing. There was a directive from the African National Congress, you know, don't fund, don't legitimate, don't support apartheid state. But then you know, how we enacted boycott, divest, and sanctions, how we enacted that commitment in our day-to-day practice, whether it was, you know, not buying things that from companies that were invested in South Africa, um, looking around where we were and seeing what around us in our immediate area was legitimizing the state of, of the apartheid state of South Africa. And where I was, it was the university I was attending. For other people, it was the workplace that they were organizing in. For other people, it was the companies they were invested in as shareholders. For other people, it was um, just you know consumer boycotts like Shell Oil. I still can't buy from Shell Oil. Um, you know, um, for other folks, it was you know artists and cultural and academic boycotts. For other people, um, you know, it was it was artists against apartheid. You know, there was just so many ways that everyone not through some central top-down five-year strategic plan to end apartheid in South Africa, you know, mm-hmm. through this, you know, uh, carefully developed plan, but through unified, decentralized um, organizing where we looked and learned from each other um, and adapted our learnings and lessons from our own practice and others to our local conditions and were networked and in communication with each other. And as you said, with a shared intention, a shared politic, and that's what's really important is that, mm. you know, emergent strategies has to operate within a politic. I think that's where folks didn't understand the politic behind emergent strategies A black feminist, abolitionist, anti-capitalist politic is what needs to operationalize emergent strategies and that it has to be very real about contending for power and that these are tools as we're contending for power and building power and 
defending our communities and our experiments and our ourselves and our sovereignty and our self-determination. Um, but those things can't be lost. And I think that's what got lost in kind of the New York Times bestselling popularization of emergent strategies, which is right. part of the reason I wrote the book is to like reground it in in where it came from, um, where the ideas ex- summarized and explored in the book came from, the organizing that reflects it and the politic that I believe has to guide it and an understanding that other people are using these strategies because they are just how change happens. And so we have to get a better understanding of that and learn from our own experiences with kind of industrialized models of mass mobilization um, and and shift um, and, and do that with urgency because, you know, our, our lives, the lives of the people around the world and the life of the planet is at stake. And so we want to reach for as many tools as possible. That doesn't mean abandoning, mm-hmm. you know, ones that, that, you know, come at power in a particular way, but it means thinking through and practicing the ones that are most effective and shifting towards the world that we want. Absolutely. Beautifully put. And ultimately, the point that you make throughout the book is that like this multiplicity, the embracing of creativity and of collaboration and sort of trusting each other to all be working towards the same goal, right? These are actually like what have allowed you to continue doing that policy work too, right? Like it's unsustainable for us to be expecting for a single top-down strategy just from like a position of capacity, right? Um, And that's certainly not what our enemies are doing, right? So why necessarily waste the time of saying, you know, either or it's time to pick. So I also wanted to thank you also because this book, you know, as I've mentioned, like, offered me an opportunity to grow, to reflect on what had made me, you know, nervous about encountering this, nervous about seeing the same ideas in the things that I was fighting and the things that I was inspired by, right? You know, just even like these small mentions, these small ways that, for example, sometimes uh, the RAND Corporation tells on itself, right? Like in the ways that they collect and narrate these things and ultimately, really, you know, prove that it does come down to the construction of a culture in real time, which is something that cannot be constructed just from one angle or one side or using one strategy, but is actually a kind of constant chaotic process of social reproduction. Exactly. And policy unfolds in that larger culture and context in the way that you were describing. And so, um, again, no matter what we think about these ideas, we need to um, attend to them and learn from them in order to make the change that we're trying to create more effective and more possible. And, and again, create more possibilities towards the worlds we long for. Well, and it's only deepened and strengthened your own organizing practice, you know, and if anything, that should be a goal that we're all working towards just personally, you know. Right. We're all still learning and changing and growing. And thank and, goodness. <laughs> um, that, that was, that is definitely, this is definitely a practice of doing that in public, which again, uncomfortable and necessary. So thank you for being part of my learning and growing throughout writing this book and even in this conversation and being that for a practice space for all of your listeners and creating communities of practice towards a world that, um, that embodies the vision that uh, we have for our futures. Well, and I also just want to say thank you for including some excellent COVID analysis in the book as well. If we had another hour and a half, we could go, you know, for hours talking about this 
specific angles of the pandemic. So there's just like so there's so much you put too much in the book, Andrea. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it might be my last one. So it's all in there. (laughs) Well, don't say that because then you're going to like have four more ideas in the next year. Just watch. Jinx yourself. We'll see. see. Thanks so much for having me on. I so so appreciate you. Likewise. Thank you so much, Andrea. I really, really appreciate it. And listeners, again, Andrea's new book is called Practicing New Worlds, Abolition and Emergent Strategies, out from AK Press. We'll put a link to that in the episode description. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. To support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You'll get access to our entire back catalog of bonus episodes and our second weekly bonus episode that comes out every week on Monday. If you'd like to help us out a little bit more, you can share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore, pre-order a copy of Jules's new book coming in January called A Short History of Trans Misogyny, or request them both at your local library. And of course, you can follow us at deathpanel underscore. Patrons will catch you Monday in the patron feed. For everyone else, we will catch you later next week. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. <laughs>